Hey, beautiful. My new book, Beautiful Writers, A Journey of Big Dreams and Messy Manuscripts with Tricks of the Trade from Bestselling Authors, is finally out in bookstores. For as long as I can remember, I have wanted to write books. I'm guessing you can relate because you have stories too. World-transforming ideas tickling your brain. A unique perspective on a corner of life somehow overlooked. Perhaps a tale that won't stop unfurling its chapters inside your mind. The dream, the ache to write, has been thrumming through your veins for longer than you can recall. And yet, something, time, confidence, life, is holding you back. Well, not anymore, if I have something to say about it. I hope you'll pick up a copy of Beautiful Writers and let me know what you think. Now, let's start the show. It's clearly a huge mistake to write in your house. It's just stupid. If you have kids, if you have anyone, if you have a refrigerator, it's just a bad idea to write in your house. Writers don't really talk about, I'm going to write a book. Writers write. Mm. And that's the thing that I try to tell people. Talk less, write more. Nice. That's a good one. I'm just a mess. It's very hard to make something out of nothing. And that's what we're doing when we're writing. Yeah. It requires a lot from us. I have rules. When my door is closed, leave me alone. I'm off limits. So you have an hour, make it a sacred hour. Mm. If you can do that every day at the same time, it's amazing what can happen. Oh, how I love Shakespeare. I love Shakespeare. That was one book. I took two books with me to Gombe. Didn't actually have much time to read it because I was writing up my field notes by a lantern late into the night. But I took Shakespeare with me because I didn't want to be without him. Times have changed so drastically so recently that I look at my books, even books like State of Water and Belcanto, mm-hmm. I look at those books and I think, I'm not sure that I could start out today writing those books. I have noticed that we don't like to talk about slavery in America too much. And I think it doesn't fit with our sense of ourselves as Americans, the winners. Tagore said every child that is born is proof that God has not given up on human beings. So my hope would be that if there's a critical mass of people who wake up from the waking sleep that they're in, and stop being biological robots, then we could hope for a more peaceful, just, sustainable, healthier, and joyful world. When I sign up writers, I think of them all as being like I'm assembling this team of superheroes, right? And each one of them has some kind of special superpower that they're going to bring to this process that we have in front of us of changing this country. Every human culture has trickster figures. Some of them are coyote. Some they have jesters. And often you find the trickster figures sit close to the person in power. (laughs) Until in some instances they take over the seat of power. I'm Linda Sievertson, author, book midwife, idea fairy, and tree hugger. You are at the fourth annual Best of episode of the Beautiful Writers podcast. 
It's December 2020. A little tardy to post my August to August episode. But what can I say? It's 2020. Not that I haven't been productive. I did take the break from not being able to travel to my writing retreats to finally finish my book proposal and a third of my manuscript for a book based on this show. My agent and I have been taking Zoom meetings with publishers for the beautiful writer's life since last month. And I'm super excited that I have found my tree-hugging dream team, which is no small feat in an industry dominated by paper. I will have a lot more to share on that subject once our contractual ink dries. But dream teams aside, this has been an intense year for all of us. So much loss and sadness and meaning and beauty all mashed together. I wanted to create a comforting kind of writer's survival guide for this show to fill this episode with the most delightful and helpful kick-ass advice and inspiration from writers who know how to deliver no matter what. Cheryl Strait, Deepak Chopra, Terry McMillan, Sue Munt Kidd, and many more of our most beloved authors share how to unlock your flow in the toughest of times. Sometimes all you need is to know that it's hard for them too, to focus and deliver when the world is mad. I hope they'll make you smile and laugh and feel more courageous as they've done for me. Because if we can't believe in our dreams right now, when? I, for one, had always been too intimidated to ask Joy Harjo, the Poet Laureate of the United States, to come on this show. Same with Dr. Jane Goodall and Chris Jackson, the renowned publisher of authors like ta Coates, Jay-Z, Valerie Kaur, and Trevor Noah. But after the urgency of this year, it just felt scarier not to ask. So I did, and had some of the most meaningful conversations I've ever had. If there's anything I know about you, it's that you're here to create beauty in this world. And to do that, to wield the power of your pen, you need tools for collapsing time and dodging drama and doom scrolling for starters. Because saving the world, saving readers, heck, saving yourself by living creatively makes for a very good life. This is a long episode, two hours, but it's been a while and these people are so special. Take your time. Listen in sections if needed. Savor them. In three parts, we'll be focusing on topics that affect all writers. Time, habits, and vision, as in mission. As we go, you'll hear a few bits from audiobooks, a film, and a stage performance, all of which I'll credit at the time so you know what's what. Let's kick this off with Cheryl Strait. New York Times bestselling author of Wild, Brave Enough, and Tiny Beautiful Things, advice on love and life from Dear Sugar, as Cheryl discusses the challenges of being a writer and wife and mother simultaneously. Welcome. I have really been grappling with this so hard lately because I have no idea. I wish somebody would tell me how actually this is done how you're a writer and also a mother and a member of a domestic unit, a domestic (laughs) family. I guess that's what it's called. I just wish everyone would go to boarding school or something. But, you know, I really don't know the answer to it. And all I can say is I'm trying lately to take advice that I've occasionally given is sugar. 
And that is to remember to take the long view because mm. I have a book due. I have all these projects in the works that I'm trying to finish. And I'm in the slow lane because I also have to do things like figure out what's for dinner every night and figure out how to get <laughs> so-and-so to basketball and the other one to the guitar lesson, you know, that kind of yeah. thing. And I'm like, okay, well, this too shall pass to take the long view and realize this is just an era of my life. In five or six years time, my kids will be off at college, hopefully, if not in prison, <laughs> in college. And yeah. in that same way, when they were toddlers, where those days felt endless, where it was just like trying to get people to nap and trying to get people to eat their vegetables. You thought they'd never end and then they ended. And yeah. then now it's this other part. And so I think what I have to remember is that I'll look back on these days and smile. I won't feel the sense of panic and despair that I sometimes feel when it comes to making time for my work. Time, the great challenge for all of us, right? We're going to hear some of the many different ways in which authors safeguard their time. We can have life-changing, earth-saving stories to tell, but if we don't get them down and out into the world, they can't work their magic. We'll get back to Cheryl Strayed, who continues to be delightfully honest about her challenges staying focused. But for now, let's hear from best-selling humorist and former Time Magazine columnist, Joel Stein. He came on while on tour for his latest book, In Defense of Elitism, which is about embracing reason and science and good old-fashioned book learning. Talk about being efficient with his time. Joel had also just published an article on reputation for Town & Country magazine, a second article on impeachment for the Washington Post, and a third on the Democratic field for the New York Times. Here he is talking about the evils of working from home, his favorite time of day to write, and his hack for keeping track of his many ideas. It's clearly a huge mistake to write in your house. And I don't abide by that. I built a home office, which now I feel committed to. Yeah. Although my wife's kind of turned it into a pottery area, so maybe it's not mine anymore. Oh, that's helpful. Yeah, I think just getting dressed and showering even and going somewhere else is probably a big help. I'm definitely a night writer. I think morning writers and night writers are the same. They just aren't different circadian rhythms. Either way, you're a little out of it because you're tired and there's no one around and there's no emails coming. And it's just, there's fewer distractions, which is the whole problem with writing during the day. Although lots of people can do it. They just, Dave Eggers turns off his Wi-Fi and has a flip phone and locks himself in a room. And if you can do that, that's much better. Yeah, no, not easy. All of my ideas are out of desperation. I wrote this memoir, or series of funny essays. It was awful. I didn't want it to run. So in desperation, I sent my book editor like five ideas that I thought might make a book. And she picked one of them. I think most of my ideas are like, there's a deadline coming. Yeah. You know, sometimes I will jot things down. I will jot things down regularly. When I read something or I say something that I find amusing or someone else says something I find amusing, I want to steal it. And it's great now that I have a smartphone because you can just type them in there because I don't carry around a notebook. So I just have a list. Oh, and you type them into your phone or do you voice memo them? I use that notes app mm-hmm. and I either type or dictate depending on whether I'm driving slowly or quickly. Oh, good God. Okay, so it's not currently as easy to leave our houses to write as it was when Joel and I had this chat. 
so maybe it's more relevant to talk about having good boundaries around our writing. If there's one person I wish I could have emulated in the boundary department when I first started, it's Terry McMillan. She's become a dear friend since the first time she was on this show. I, like millions of others, fell in love with Terry through her number one New York Times bestseller, Stella Got Her Groove Back, and Waiting to Exhale, both of which became hit movies. But it's Terry's colossal heart and wicked sense of humor that make me love her as a friend. The day she came back on this show, we were joined by another dear buddy, New York Times bestselling memoirist and novelist, Laura Munson, who was just about ready to start touring for her latest bestseller, Willis Grove. In this snippet, Terry answers my query about how to steal away time to write when you've got loved ones at home who also need your attention. I have rules and even rules for myself. I had an office. My bedroom was right next to my office. And my husband, he knew pretty much don't mess with me when that door is closed. My son, it should be an emergency. When my door is closed, leave me alone. I'm off limits. And when I open the door, just look at me. If I don't look at you, that means I'm still writing. I'm thinking about something. So don't say anything to me. Even my dog knew. Don't mess with mommy. No. <laughs> she might not pet me if I just walk by. And my cat, too, Dilbert. They just sort of knew when she walked by us yeah. and she doesn't acknowledge us, leave her alone. <laughs> How about you, Laura? What wisdom have you got on this one? Oh, well, I'd love to ask you guys if you really think you can turn it off. I think you can no. have good boundaries. But I think anybody who knows me and loves me knows that as a writer, we're just constantly, like I said before, mining our lives. We're just paying attention. That's how we navigate life. I mean, you can take it to like a varsity level and maybe that's not appropriate. So for instance, I used to grocery shop in character (laughs) to try to understand my characters better. My kids would be like, oh mom, frozen peas. Are you doing that weird thing where you're grocery shopping in one of your characters again? (laughs) I was like, yes, busted. Maybe that's an extreme, but I don't know that writers truly can turn it off. I know I can't. Movie star, Oscar-nominated screenwriter for My Big Fat Greek Wedding, and best-selling author of Instant Mom, Nia Vardalos, who adapted Cheryl Strayed's Tiny Beautiful Things for the stage. She came on with Cheryl and gave us her take on mastering time, as well as some of our most memorable lines from the show, especially if you're one to write hungry. I tend to turn off my Wi-Fi when I'm writing because I have zero willpower when it comes to checking Twitter or eating. I enjoy eating and I enjoy Twitter, and so I just limit it. I used to do a thing of a write a page, eat a snack, I call it, but now I, I try and just write a chunk, a scene, and I give myself rewards. Like you can now look and see what Jane Bond is doing. Getting arrested. Write a page, eat a snack. Write a page, eat a snack. Okay, I'm going to try to follow Nia's boot camp for the next <laughs> couple of weeks. Here's Nia again, getting bare bones about what it takes. I really do want the marginalized voice to write more. I speak on screenwriting. I look to the back and I see the indigenous woman at the back shyly at this writing course. 
And I just want to run up and hug her and say, please write your story. So I am very, very encouraging about writers. However, writers don't really talk about, I'm going to write a book. Writers write. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing that I try to tell people. Talk less, write more. Interviewing Dr. Jane Goodall, Dame of the British Empire, founder of the Jane Goodall Institute, and UN Messenger of Peace was a career highlight. Once COVID hit, I used the sense of urgency I felt to reach out to Dr. Goodall via our longtime mutual friend, environmentalist Keely Shea Brosnan. Keels was publicizing Poisoning Paradise, an award-winning film she'd created with her husband, Pierce. And the timing was perfect. Nat Geo was coming out with a film of Jane's life called The Hope, which they have graciously allowed us to excerpt. You'll hear some of that in a bit. But for this snippet, I asked Jane how she gets in the flow to write her bestsellers amidst all of her world saving. My big problem was that once I began writing, I was also being an activist. (laughs) And uh, well, I guess the first one, I was still with the chimp. So that was better. But yes, you get in, I can't write books on the road. I have to be at least to have four days when I do nothing but do books. So I didn't do emails or anything. Get completely wrapped up in it. And then there comes a day when it's just a block. So you say, well, never mind that chapter. I'll start another one. And then I'll do <laughs> so that's how I've basically done it. But I love writing. I just love it. You're and you know, beautiful what writing. really helped me was when I went to Cambridge, I hadn't been to college. Leakey wanted me because I had a mind uncluttered by reductionist theory of the animal behavior people. And when I was told that I shouldn't talk about animals with personalities, minds, and emotions, I knew the professors were wrong. But at Cambridge, I was taught to think in a logical and scientific way. Mm. So I could carry on with what was then rather revolutionary, talking about animals as individuals, which wasn't done in animal behavior at the time, but to apply this logical way of thinking. And I think that's helped my writing. It's helped me to think things through really carefully and realize that, well, I've said this paragraph, but actually it's contradicting something I said earlier. So let me get these two paragraphs together and make sense of it. So I love writing. I just love it. Lord, how I love Sue Monkhead's honesty. She was on in May on her virtual book tour for her hit, The Book of Longings. That's her latest novel centered around the wife of Jesus. I'm a longtime fan of her hits, The Secret Life of Bees and Dance of the Dissident Daughter, among others. Sue was joined on this episode by her dear friend, fellow bestseller Anne Patchett, whose latest novel, The Dutch House, was a finalist for the 2020 Pulitzer Prize in Fiction. Here, Sue is telling us about her writing cave and how she sneaks away for solitude. Sue, where is your writing cave right now? Or do you not need one since you're in promotion time versus writing time? No, I need one all the time. I have a room upstairs that I converted into my, what I call my study. 
my husband says, what are you studying up there? <laughs> but, it, but it's my study. <laughs> but it's, it's a real sanctuary for me. I love my solitude. And Sandy and I have been married 51 years. Wow. Mm. Yeah, I wanted you to be wowed by that. <laughs> really beautiful. Am, I married at 20. This is the kind of craziness we did in the 60s. <laughs> you know? Well, you were Southern Baptist. Yep. Yeah, I mean, you had to be engaged before you left college back then. It was a strange time. But at any rate, we have a wonderful rhythm, too. He lets me have my solitude and my time and without, similar to what you were describing, Anne, and I think that's beautiful. And right now, I'm hearing from so many women who are talking about the need to have some time for themselves. They struggle with that, particularly younger women. It's just like a theme about, particularly among writers. It's an ache. Yeah, it's an ache. It's a longing. And I remember that when I had two toddlers. It's very hard. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Did you ever feel like you were stealing time? You know, I used to eye the door and I would feel so guilty because I loved my kid and I loved my husband. But that desire to write was so all-encompassing that I just couldn't wait to get away from them. Did you feel like that? Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Why am I whispering? I don't know. <laughs> and did you feel guilty? And how did you rectify that? I think it is some kind of innate conflict. If you go the mothering route, it just seems to be there. If you're with the child, you want to be writing. If you're writing, you need to be with the child. Oh, totally. It's just hard. And fortunately, it's relatively temporary, I guess. Yeah, only 18 years. (laughs) Yeah, it feels like forever. My daughter likes to tell the story of when I forget to pick her up at school, she would be the last child out there because I was in my writing room. and. She said, I'm going to be on a therapist's couch because of you never thought to come get me. (laughs) I've got a few more time wranglers for you. I was literary matchmaking, something that totally lights me up, whether I'm connecting a client with her dream agent or putting authors together for the show who've always loved each other, but who have yet to meet. That was the case with Glennon Doyle and her idol, Anne Lamott. It's also a total thrill to bring on writers who are close in real life, but who haven't had a chance to do a podcast together, as was the case with Nia Vardalos and Cheryl Strayed, or in this instance, besties Danny Shapiro and Gabby Bernstein. I loved bringing Danny and Gabby back pre-COVID. They were touring for their latest New York Times bestsellers, Inheritance in Danny's case, and Super Attractor for Gabby. With over a dozen bestsellers between them, these two are pro time wranglers. The one thing that I would say, because I've had a lot of students who are working a couple of jobs or they have young kids or both, is that it's not either or. Don't compare your life as it is today with somebody who's been doing this for 20 years or longer. I have students who, one I'm thinking of in particular, who was a psychologist and an AIDS researcher and had two young children. And she wrote both of her first novels, which have both been published, in the hours of like 
5 to 6.30 every morning before her household woke up. And she just created this absolutely sacred, disciplined space where that was going to be her time. And that was when she was going to get her writing done. And one of the things I will say to people is just touch your project every day. It doesn't mean you're going to have the whole day to do your work. Sometimes those are the worst days, actually, when you have the whole day to do your work. Because then suddenly, like, <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> so you have an hour, make it a sacred hour. Mm. If you can do that every day at the same time, it's amazing what can happen. When I wrote my first novel, and I think I did this for my first couple of books, three pages a day, five days a week. That was 15 pages a week. That was 60 pages a month. If you actually adhere to that discipline, you could have a draft of a novel in half a year, which is nothing in terms of writing a novel. I can echo that. That's exactly how I write. I will mainly write in the morning, but also devote myself to writing daily, no matter how much or how little it is. Continuing in this theme, I often hear spiritual folk talk about how when they stick to a regular meditation practice, it's as if they collapse time, giving them more of it. Let's drop back in on Gabby and Danny as they talk about how in their meditation practices, time spent on the cushion pays off in mystical ways. In the book, I talk about how you can do less and attract more. Yep. So when we have a devotional practice, and Danny can speak to hers too. Danny has a very beautiful, devoted morning practice that I know saves her and serves her. You have that practice and you make it your highest priority. You can literally do less and attract more. You bring more to everything that you do. You are more relaxed and at ease. And the universe has your back, frankly. I love the way those two ideas tie together. The universe has your back and super attractor. And one of the things that I love that has always been a teaching of yours and part of the way that you live, Gabby, that's sort of coming to light in super attractor is the, you know, I just thought about it when you brought up my meditation practice, because when I sit for, it's 18 minutes, it's sort of what I've arrived at. I sit for 18 minutes every morning without fail. And those 18 minutes, which are really not very many minutes when you think about it, set up this, like my day has more hours in it. My mind has more freedom. We all have our ways of navigating this pandemic. Some deal with stress by falling into self-sabotage, thwarting even their best laid plans while others find themselves more focused than ever on self-care. I have a friend who, no longer able to go to the gym, started walking and now walks miles every day. He lost weight and feels healthier and happier than he did prior to the pandemic. Some of us right now can't meditate for nothing. And yet, others say that meditation has been a lifeline to getting them through this. During my interview with Gabby Bernstein, I mentioned that when her friend Deepak Chopra was on this show, he talked about meditating for hours every day. And Gabby said, well, that's how you author 90 books, right? Which got me thinking more about how this practice of sitting still accelerates creativity, something Deepak explained more fully on his episode. Meditation done properly takes you beyond thought. And 
meditation is not a mental experience. It's an experience that allows you to actually go to the source of thought, which uh, in Eastern wisdom traditions is called consciousness. So consciousness is that which makes any experience possible, including the experience that we call thinking. And, of course, perception and everything else that is associated with the mind. And yet meditation is actually decreasing mental activity and ultimately transcending mental activity, where all creativity lies. 99% of our thoughts are actually not original, unless you're, you know, once in a while, an Einstein or a Mozart or a Beethoven or a a great writer comes along and they say something original. But 99.99% of our thoughts are recycled. Uh, They're recycled from other people's thoughts, social media, news, everything from movies to newspapers to social interactions. So actually the same mental structures have been recycling for thousands of years. Meditation allows you to occasionally go beyond these structures of thought. And in that space between thoughts, the space between any experience, space between sensation, images, feelings, thoughts, perceptions, that is what Eastern wisdom traditions call pure consciousness, which is without conditioning. What is awareness prior to its conditioning. And that's a field of not only infinite creativity, but also insight and intuition and imagination and higher vision and archetypes. And you go beyond that. If you go totally beyond all of that, you enter a realm of pure consciousness, which is infinite possibilities, what is also called non-local correlation, synchronicity, unpredictability. This is where attention and intention originate, and if you incubate here, as in the deep sleep state, or even in the dream state, or even while daydreaming, or during meditation, then once in a while you go over beyond your habitual certainties, which interfere with the creative process. Oh, man. That's not a tweetable, but it's damn quotable. (laughs) Okay. A quick recap so far. We've admitted that carving out time to write can be hard. However, we know how to identify our distractions and what time of day we're at our best. We've got tips for getting down and organizing our ideas and how to create better boundaries with family members, even pets named Dilbert. We can find sacred minutes or hours a day to get our words on the page. We're inspired to meditate, to do less and attract more. Now that that's all handled, phew, let's focus on habits, mental and physical. I want to begin with the thoughts we think. According to Kelly Noonan-Gores, the director, writer, and star of the global phenom, The Heal documentary and book, as of last year, 133 million Americans were living with a chronic disease. That's nearly half of us, with 81 million having multiple conditions. Healing is on all of our minds lately, and Kelly gathers together leading scientists, doctors, and spiritual teachers to show how our thoughts, beliefs, and emotions have a huge impact on our health. For her episode, I partnered Kelly with Anita Morjani, whose international bestseller, Dying to Be Me, 
tells the story of her spontaneous healing from cancer. She was riddled for years with tumors, only to walk out of the hospital completely cancer-free after a near-death experience. It's the story that first inspired Kelly to write her film. And in this clip, we see how Kelly embraced the creative habit of listening to her heart and following where it told her to go. I'd go to Agape and Michael Beckwith would be giving a sermon. He'd be telling me whatever that thing that lights you up, whatever that calling is, that vision that you have in your heart, God gives you that, but he also gives you she, he, it, God. The divine gives you that with all of the means and the ways to make it happen. It's like the within every acorn is an oak tree and, and a forest of oak trees. So I think all of these serendipitous things that happened as this seed was marinating and germinating, they, it just kept strengthening my call. And at the same time, I was learning to pay attention to the things that made me light up inside to talk about, you know, my passion. Mm -hmm. And I would follow that. And I'd follow that with the confidence knowing, okay, if this is a vision in my heart, if this is a calling, the way will be shown to me to get it done. Because you don't get ignited that much in your heart. You don't have a passion without the ability to see it through to what you want it to become. Anita, too, has this habit of fierce optimism in her thinking, of seeing what she wants and believing in her dreams, a direct byproduct, she says, of her near-death experience. In this part of our chat, we were talking about avoiding toxins and the electronic pollution we can't see, but it does feel relevant to health concerns in general. When I got well after the NDE, my focus shifted and I view the world really, really differently. I realized that our soul, which is made purely of energy, yeah. And we are predominantly souls more than we are physical bodies. We act like we are physical beings, but our physical self is only like the tip of an iceberg. Our real self is our soul. It's our energy being. And that part of us is so much bigger than our physical self. And that was one of the biggest things that I came away from the near-death experience realizing is that when you believe that you are just this physical being, you think this is all you are. And so you bend yourself out of shape like a pretzel to try and fit in and to please other people. But when I crossed over, I realized I was not a physical being. I was, we all are, a huge spiritual being that is expressing itself through the physical at this point in time. But this spiritual being, this soul, has always lived and always will. It is powerful, huge. It has a purpose. And once I got in touch with that, it was like, wow, this is so much bigger than anything I could ever imagine. And so my message was that I wish everybody knew that about themselves because when they know that and when they're living from that place, you become guided. But when you think you're a little physical being and you think I have to run around physically worrying about this and that and changing this and changing that. We put all this burden on the shoulder of this little physical body that is scared of this and scared of that. And this little physical body starts to get worn down because this little physical person is afraid that if I don't do this, this will happen to me. 
But when you live from the soul, you have a very different perspective on life. When you do things that are nourishing for your soul, when you're following your purpose and you are living your purpose and you are doing things that are from the place of your soul, it's almost like your body feels more energized. But when you do things out of fear and you're trying to fit in and you're trying to people please and you are being driven only by fear in your choices because you don't trust that your soul has a higher purpose and that there's a bigger calling waiting for you, when you do things like that, what it does is it shrinks your energy. But when my, thank you, and when my energy is expanded, I'm also more guided to be in the right place at the right time for synchronicities to take place. Mm. And I think you're more resistant. Your immune system's stronger, but also those yes. things don't enter your field because your energy is so strong. So you're less affected by these pathogens, toxins, and invisible yes. waves out there. This story from Joel Stein, to me, epitomizes the habit of believing you're worthy of telling a story, or lots of them, no matter what kind of hater you may encounter. So what I remember is having written a pilot for Fox, living in New York City, a sitcom, and Fox, because the the, the Writers Guild had to fly me first class. It was non-negotiable. I had to fly first class back to LA for meetings. And so I was flying first class, and I was friends with this woman through a friend of mine in LA named Stacey Williams, who had been a Sports Illustrated swimsuit model. And apparently she was on this flight and she saw me. She was flying first class for some Sports Illustrated thing. And she said, we should sit next to each other. And I was like, this can't be my life. Like I'm flying to Fox for a pilot and there's a Sports Illustrated swimsuit <laughs> model who wants to sit next to me. Like this is all, this plane's going down for sure. Like this yeah. is the end for me. So she asks the flight attendant, if she can sit next to me. And he said, let me ask the person who's supposed to sit there. It's Vidal Gore. And I was like, oh, you must mean Gore Vidal. He's like, nope, the manifest says Vidal Gore. I was like, I doubt there's a Vidal Gore. So Gore Vidal comes in and he graciously agrees to sit with someone else who he enjoys talking to much more. And then as we're leaving the flight, I thank him. And I say, you know, actually, I know people who you're friends with and love you. This guy, John Dickerson, I work with. And he's like, oh, yeah, you work at Time Magazine. That place has been destroyed. He's like, Walter Isaacson took it over. And he's letting these young idiots write in first person about their stupid lives. And I was like, oh, my God. Gorbidal's talking about me. And literally, I am so solipsistic that all I could think was like, Gorbidal knows who I am. This is wonderful. Then again, in talking about how some people use affirmations for success, Joel revealed that he's not always so sure of himself. So, no, I've never repeated, I don't have the confidence to even repeat an affirmation. (laughs) That seems to require a lot, just to sit in a room and talk about yourself in third person and how you're going to be awesome. (laughs) If I could do that, I wouldn't need to do that. Sometimes our confidence, our sense of belief in ourselves, looks a bit like disbelief or winging it, as you'll see here from Danny Shapiro. It's funny, Linda, when you were asking Gabby, like, do you have a prayer or a thing you say to yourself when you sit down to write? I thought to myself, usually I had this realization when I was looking at a lot of pieces that I'd written over the last bunch of years, all of which have worked out. 
but I thought to myself, you know what I always say to myself when I'm beginning each one of these? Here goes nothing. Oh, you're kidding. (laughs) No. I don't think I do that as much anymore, but I think it's morphed actually into, and my students wanted to put this on t-shirts for themselves, fuck it, be fearless. Which is like a close cousin to here goes nothing because it's like, here goes nothing means, you know what? I'm just pushing off from the depths of that place that it's finally where the beginning of fearlessness comes from. Here's a story I bet you haven't heard before. Few things are as lauded in our society as having an MD in front of your name. But when Deepak Chopra was publicizing his first book, Quantum Healing, he asked his publicist at the time, Ariel Ford, to take the MD off of his name when promoting his book. Huh? Ariel, who helped bring to fame authors like Marianne Williamson, Wayne Dyer, Neil Donald Walsh, and Deepak, is a longtime mutual friend of us both. And it was so much fun to have her join us on this episode. Even though it had a good review at the New England Journal of Medicine, it was basically vilified by the American medical establishment as being fraudulent that I was uh, co-opting the word uh, quantum and that uh, I had no business even using the phrase quantum healing. (laughs) And at that time, I was actually practicing in Boston and there were rumors that I would be fired. I was already uh, teaching at BU School of Medicine in Tufts and Harvard and in a group practice, and I knew that uh, my colleagues were embarrassed by the fact that I was an MD and saying what they thought were outrageous things. So (laughs) I decided for a while to get rid of the MD and get out of their way. What if you're not in the habit of writing books, but you've got a deadline with a big publisher and you're super sick and pregnant and worried you may not even make it? Such was the case with Valerie Kaur, who was on with her legendary editor, Chris Jackson. When Valerie couldn't get the words down on the page for See No Stranger, a memoir and manifesto of revolutionary love, technology provided the perfect workaround and a new habit we can all emulate. That's how the book finally came out of me. And I did it by speaking it out loud. My best friend was like, well, you're not finding your writing voice on the page. When do you sound like yourself? And I said, when I'm giving a speech. Yeah. <laughs> when I, then I see the audience in front of me, the ego in me gets really quiet. I stop trying to pretend to be perfect. And I just give them exactly what I need to give them from my heart to theirs. And so. I began actually writing the chapters that you read as a long speech and I said it out loud and I would record myself and listen to it again. It was like more like composing music Mm -hmm. than writing. There was a rhythm and cadence. Speaking of speeches, in Valerie's episode, I included part of a speech she gave in Washington, D.C. at the Metropolitan AME Church in the wake of the divisive 2016 election. This was a speech where she invited us all to midwife a new nation waiting to be born from the darkness. It was powerful for many reasons, starting with the fact that she's a Sikh woman speaking before a Christian congregation that culminates in a rousing standing ovation. I highly recommend Googling it. 
In the video, Valerie talks about her grandfather immigrating by steamship from India in 1913 and being imprisoned for months in America because of the color of his skin and his religious dress. That talk catapulted Valerie into the spotlight, has garnered 40 million views and led to a book contract for See No Stranger. The mother in me asks, what if? What if this darkness is not the darkness of the tomb, but the darkness of the womb? What if our America... What if our America is not dead, but a country that is waiting to be born? What if the story of America is one long labor? What if all of our grandfathers and grandmothers are standing behind us now, those who survived occupation and genocide, slavery and Jim Crow, detentions and political assault? What if they're whispering in our ear today, tonight, you are brave? What if this is our nation's great transition? What does the midwife tell us to do? Breathe. And then, because if we don't push, we will die. If we don't push, our nation will die. Tonight, we will breathe. Tomorrow, we will labor in love, through love. And your revolutionary love is the magic we will show our children. Being an author takes a long-term vision. Few books are created or sustained quickly. We need stamina and commitment. In Valerie Kaur's episode, I asked her publisher, Chris Jackson, a question that gives us a glimpse into the kind of mental strength and courage necessary. Chris, how does it feel for you to help people's dreams come true like this? Um, how does it feel for me? Well, to be a midwife, you're a midwife. Clues you in a little bit. It is also I'm helping them realize their worst nightmare, which is having to actually write the book. (laughs) So it's an interesting journey that you take with writers because I think at the beginning there is this kind of excitement, and then it's really, really hard work. It's arduous. It's the hardest work in some ways because if you're going to write something that's true, you write something that's real, write something that's going to actually help people, you have to dig so deep. And you think you've gone deep enough, and then you have to go that extra layer deeper. And Valerie talks about having to go through the fire. And in some ways, I think writing a book is like that, you know? Or, of course, this is not something I've experienced myself, but certainly I've (laughs) read a lot about it, certainly in Valerie's book, (laughs) and in Valerie's drafts, even, about childbirth, it's hard. It's hard. And you do have these moments when you're like, I don't know, is this going to happen? Am I going to make it? And I think every writer goes through that. So in part, even when I'm making a deal with a writer, I know that we're going to go through a dark moment (laughs) together at some point. (laughs) Moments of doubt and moments of difficulty and moments when you have to think, I know my story. And then it turns out you don't know your story, that your story is maybe something deeper and maybe even more painful the story you've been telling yourself is your story. And it takes so much bravery, which is why I have so much admiration for the writers to really do that work because Mm -hmm. it's a gift 
to give to to readers and to the world. And it takes something really courageous in the writer to extract that gift. <laughs> yeah, so that's tricky. But um... <laughs> the topic of healthy habits encompasses a lot of things. One of my most cherished habits is listening to audiobooks. When Ann Patchett and Sumant Kidd were on the show in May, they talked about how they'd been each having trouble focusing while reading during the pandemic and about how audiobooks were a godsend. To me, they're the ultimate time saver. When I'm working on a book, like now, my eyes often feel like they've been sandblasted. So the last thing I need to do is make them read anything else. And if you love to cook and clean and dog walk and garden and even do laundry like I do, listening to a book is multitasking heaven. You mean I can go on an epic odyssey with you while I'm feeding my family, exercising, and making our home party? Magic. Not to mention it's more environmentally friendly. Although, full disclosure, I still often buy the book because I'm an underliner and a dog earer, and I like to go back and read bits or the whole book again. By the way, in case you've got some silly belief that listening to a book isn't as legit as reading one, science tells us that listening stimulates our brains as much as reading. So listen on. What I also love about a book on tape are the talented narrators, the sound effects, the music. Books aren't just read, they are performed. Because I was able to use some incredible audio snippets from my interviewees this past year, I want to share a few of them here, just because. Anne Patchett's Pulitzer finalist, The Dutch House, was narrated by none other than Tom Hanks. I know Tom, and I asked him, how's that for an answer? I I, never in a million years thought that he would do it, but I knew that he wouldn't do it if I never asked him. (laughs) I did the same thing. I asked him to be on this show, and he said yes, and I still can't believe it. I mean, he's just a good guy. He's a really, really nice man. And he obviously loved your story, or he never would have taken the hours and hours it takes to narrate it. Yeah, and it was a first-person male narrator. So I thought, I'm just going to give this a shot. And oh, so good. It worked. Yeah, it's He's phenomenal. Perfect I've never listened to any of my own audiobooks, and I listened to that one. It was gorgeous. It was gorgeous. He's the perfect Danny. I could have been in that building every waking hour, every day of the year, and still not made all the necessary repairs. Uncontrollable steam heat. Illegal garbage disposals. One tenant whose daughter flushed an orange down the toilet to see if it would go, and another who left her door open so her cat could shit in the hall, and the terrier two doors down who would always find the shit and gobble it up and vomit on the floor. With every crisis, I learned how to fix something else, and I learned how to soothe the people whose problems were not mine to solve. To me, the courage to tell one's story is the healthiest kind of habit. I so appreciate how this snippet from Sue Monk Kidd and the audio bit from The Book of Longings illustrates this point. Writing requires a special kind of courage to, I mean, you're being audible in the world. You're sort of coming out and saying, I'm going to be out loud here. (laughs) And I think that you really want to have something to say that is, to your point, Anne, that's very important. 
but to do it with a kind of boldness. If you're going to err, do it on the side of audacity as a writer. And that's been my theory. Do it on the side of writing a book about Jesus's wife. And the- <laughs> Amen. Oh, there you go. Amen. Amen, sister. I am Anna. I was the wife of Jesus Ben Joseph of Nazareth. I called him beloved, and he, laughing, called me Little Thunder. He said he heard rumblings inside me while I slept, a sound like thunder from far over the Nahal Zippori Valley, or even farther beyond the Jordan. I don't doubt he heard something. All my life, longings lived inside me, rising up like nocturnes to wail and sing through the night. That my husband bent his heart to mine on our thin straw mat and listened was the kindness I most loved in him. What he heard was my life begging to be born. Of course, some habits seem impossible to stop indulging in. At the time of my conversation with Cheryl Strayed, the impeachment hearings were on all day, every day. It seems I wasn't the only one having trouble steering clear or feeling uh, stressed. (laughs) I'll follow this snippet up with Cheryl's thoughts on coal mining. (laughs) Say what? You'll see. Let's talk about the news, the real things that are going on in the world outside of our work. It's interesting that you asked this because it was just yesterday that I had a short story view. I was working on the revision and I really needed a full day of work. And yet I found myself periodically turning on NPR to listen to the impeachment proceedings in the Senate and find and feeling such anger and despair and grief. Really, the only way I can best describe the feeling I have about what's happening in our nation right now is grief. It's just very hard to make something out of nothing. And that's what we're doing when we're writing. Where there was no short story about this particular thing and this particular voice, I am making it. Where there was not that script that Mia's working on before or the book you're writing, we're bringing it into the world. And it just requires a lot from us. It really does. Yesterday, I actually thought about one of the things I wrote in Tiny Beautiful Things in the column, Write Like a Motherfucker. (laughs) I said, listen writing's hard, but coal mining's harder. And yesterday I realized, nope, I was wrong about that. (laughs) (laughs) Not only do I admire Terry McMillan's boundary keeping with regard to her writing time, but she's one hell of a role model with the way she takes care of her body. I was blessed to host Terry at one of my retreats in Carmel, where she was working on and read to us pages from her latest bestseller, It's Not All Downhill From Here. During the week, we all noticed that Terry didn't have wine in the evenings. She did not touch dessert. I don't even remember her having a piece of bread. Like her lead character, a senior named Loretha, who's just lost her husband, Terry still has a ton of plans. Seeing as how she signed a two-book deal with Ballantyne in November, and ABC is producing a Waiting to Exhale reboot, it's a mighty good thing she's so disciplined with her habits. I wanted to be able to write about a character who was pushing 70 because for a lot of young people, 60 is old. And I just realized a couple of years ago when I thought about my mother died at 59 and how many of my friends and even family members are gone and some of them didn't even make 60 or barely over 60. And I just started thinking, 
There are a lot of bad habits I used to have, but not for long. They weren't long-term bad habits, but they're, you know, back in the day when we were younger, we did a few illegal things, and I knew how to say no. And as a matter of fact, tomorrow will make 38 years since I've had a drink. And mm. I just gave up stuff. I stopped eating sugar, among other things. And I just realized I feel better now than I did 10 years ago. Yeah. And I like the way that I look for my age, you know, and I haven't had surgery. And I just think that, I mean, I'm not trying to look 50, but there are things that I realize that I still have a lot of time left to do. And whatever time that I do have, I'm going to give it all I've got. <laughs> and that's an understanding, something that I've come to realize, because I just feel good inside. And I think if you feel good inside, you look good outside. And there are things that we have to do, be willing to do, to treat ourselves like we're special and like we're living like we mean it. And because one day we're all going to be dead. And my attitude is I want to slide into home. Ever since my friend Kelly Noonan Gorse made her film Heal and wrote the corresponding best-selling book, she has become even more of an encyclopedia of alternative healing. She's her own best advertisement for health, too, with a grateful heart, stunning beauty, and boundless energy. I'd follow her just about anywhere. My claim to fame here is that I'm the one who told Kelly years ago about earthing, which she's since fallen in love with. Earthing? <laughs> if you're thinking WTF, Linda, I'll let Kelly tell you a bit more about it and encourage you to try it yourself by going outside with bare feet or learning more how to access the healing energy inside if you're in the snow over at earthing.com, hashtag not an ad. Kelly brought up earthing on the show along with meditation and running when I asked her about her favorite ways to rest and repair. So earthing is going out and taking off your shoes and connecting the soles of your feet to the grass or the sand or the dirt, anything that's directly in contact with the earth. And by doing that, you tap into the negative ions that the earth is giving off and nature is very healing. So when you connect with nature in that way, when you're putting your bare feet onto the earth, it lowers inflammation, it lowers blood pressure, it removes free radicals. And it feels uh, good instantly. Exactly. Writers write, and as a rule, they also read a lot. But I've come across several successful speakers turned writers who safeguard their voice on the page by not reading too much. They're concerned about being too heavily influenced by other people's storytelling style. As someone who has spent much of her career writing book proposals and helping clients get published by crafting powerful book proposals, I loved hearing Gabby Bernstein talk about her favorite kind of writing book. Gabby, you are a student of life and spirit, and I'm assuming that you've been a student of your art as well. Your books just keep getting better and better. Is there any particular writing book, aside from Danny's Still Writing, which is a Bible of the field, yeah. is there any particular writing book or books that helped you in your process? The only book I ever specifically read for writing was How to Write a Book Proposal. And so I purposefully avoided being 
told how to write because what was most important to me was to write as I speak and to write in my voice. And as soon as I started to try to be anything but that, I lost what made my books good. So my books are not a literary masterpiece or a Danny Shapiro experience, but they are a transmission of what I know to be true and what comes through me. Oh, I so, and stories. So for me, it's been very beneficial not to try to be anything but my writing, my, mm-hmm. what I hear coming through. Well, and I think that's your genius. I think that's absolutely your genius and the reason why you have millions of readers because it is just a Gabby experience. We're getting you on the page exactly like we get you in person. And that's what people want. That's why they followed you as a speaker and that's why they read all your books. I also think that that's good advice for anyone writing is don't try to be somebody else or don't try to channel somebody else's voice. That authenticity is the thing that makes your book's electric, and I think it's what makes all good books electric. Okay, before we head into the final third of this best of episode, let's do another quickie wrap up. We've covered many of the mental and physical habits that support a writer's life. We went over your calling, the vision that lights you up, and having the faith that you indeed have the means to make it happen. We were reminded that our souls are pure energy with a purpose and that they're powerful and huge. Knowing this expands our energy and our guidance. We saw how not every successful writer sees the virtue of affirmations, but thankfully we can stubbornly believe in ourselves nonetheless, even when the haters hate. We learned that the saying, here goes nothing, is a close cousin to fuck it, be fearless. We saw that sometimes it's easier and faster to speak your book than to physically write it, and that there is great value in breathing and pushing to birth something new. While writing a book is arduous, and there will be dark moments with your publisher where you think you know your story, but you don't know your story, we have to be as courageous and brave and hardworking as a coal miner. Hopefully, You're excited to download those audiobooks, not only because they're environmentally superior, but because they're a multitasker's dream. And while you want to be tuned into what's going on and put your boots on the ground as activists and allow yourself to grieve at the state of the world when you need to, we will not let the news take over our lives or stop our creativity. We're excited to shore up our habits and live like we mean it, damn it with discipline in the new year and our feet on the ground and gratitude on our lips. And we'll invest our time and resources when we can to study what we need to know, whether that's books or courses on grammar and craft and dialogue and characters or creating a powerful book proposal. Goodness, we're doing it, you guys. Now I want to talk about vision in several of its forms using one's voice and or the power of their pen to heal something at home or in the greater world. Changing the world, really. That's what I'm talking about. I'll share some of the spiritual, environmental, and visionary things my interviewees shared with me. Moments that left me wildly entertained, covered in goosebumps, or with increased faith and certainly more than a few ah ahas. 
You'll see that I'm starting to ask questions of my interviewees in this episode and going forward about their environmental practices with regard to publishing their stories. And I am loving where this question is taking us. Few world changers or tree huggers are as iconic and effective as Dr. Jane Goodall. Here she is amongst the trees in the Nat Geo film, The Hope. Out in the forest, I had this very strong feeling of great spiritual power out there. It was the kind of feeling that I sometimes have in one of the old cathedrals where people have been to worship year after year after year. The chimpanzees I knew in the old days are almost all gone. But one of the ones who was my real, I say friend, was Gremlin. The last time I actually saw Gremlin, she came right up to me and looked into my eyes. I mean, of course, they recognize us just as we recognize them. And I've always had a, a strange connection with animals. I connect with people with words. With animals, it's more mind to mind. So many things in my life seem to be coincidence, but I'm not sure I believe that anymore because things happen. I think they seem to happen for a reason. Jane, I've heard you talk before about the spiritual power you felt in the forest and that the forest to you was very much like the experience you had in cathedrals in Europe. And I want to talk about the synchronicity and the grace because one of the reasons why people are so terrified right now is they're feeling like there is a lack of hope. There's so much corruption. Nothing's ever going to change. But if you look back on your life, Jane, and when I look back on Keeley's life, there were so many synchronistic things that happened. There was so much grace. There seemed to have been a bigger picture in play. And I'm wondering, are you still hopeful about that bigger picture? I have felt for a long time that I was put onto this planet for a reason. And I think that's what keeps me going. It's a bit crazy. But <laughs> I look back over my life and there were crossroads where I could go one way or the other. I never seemed to actually make those decisions. It was just this or that and I do that without thinking why or what it will lead to. And I think I made the right decisions. It's brought me to where I am today. I never planned to do what I've done. I wanted to write books. I didn't want to give lectures <laughs> I didn't want to, talk to politicians. In fact, I was terrified. I didn't want to confront white-coated scientists in medical research labs. I didn't want to do any of those things, but I've ended up doing them. And I think a film like the one that we watched last night really brought it home to me. How weird. I've done all those different things, but I never planned to do them. They wow. happened to me. We'd just been given the order in California to shelter in place due to the pandemic. I was scared and missing my Native American friends in New Mexico, where I used to live. Wishing I could call Thomas One Wolf, a medicine man I had studied with for years, 
and his adopted father, Grandpa Pete Concha, the Kansiki, or spiritual leader of the Taos Pueblo. My family and I had called them both family, and they had long since crossed over, aching to speak to a Native American, someone raised in the tradition of being close to the earth. I had a strong intuitive sense that Joy Harjo, poet laureate of the United States and the first Native American to hold this position, would have a perspective on the pandemic sweeping the globe that would bring a higher vision and possible comfort. Boy, did she. Joy's thoughts surprised us both and remind me why I love talking with visionary creatives. They're tapped in and you never know what magic awaits. Before we get to the full story though, you'll see that I break up Joy's points with part of a performance. She's an award-winning musician as well as a memoirist, children's book author, and poet. You'll hear a performance she gave with her band at the Library of Congress the day she was inducted into her position as the nation's official poet. That's her on the sex, by the way. We're all kind of slowing down right now. And as scary as it is, it feels like there's a returning. There's some kind of powerful returning to the earth right now. Are you feeling that? Well, we all needed to stop. And I think a lot of us had the sense that we were working towards this, but we didn't know exactly what form it would take. We knew it would be something related to the earth's body. And we knew we were getting the messages very clear. We have been getting the messages very clear for a long time. Mm -hmm. And so that it came this way is it was a surprising vehicle for the stoppage. But it's actually what we needed. I love that line in Crazy Brave where you write, remember the earth whose skin you are. Yeah, that's from the poem, remember. I think we're all, as you talk about, it's so easy to forget. But I think the earth is forcing us to remember right now a lot of things. Don't bother the earth spirit who lives here. She is working on a story. It's the oldest story in the world and it is delicate changing. She sees you watching. She'll invite you in for coffee, give you warm bread and you will be obligated to stay and listen. But this is no ordinary story. You will have to endure earthquakes, lightning, the deaths of all those you love, the most blinding beauty. It's a story so compelling you may never want to leave. This is how she traps you. See that stone finger over there? That is the only one who ever escaped. Your grandmother had tuberculosis, as did my grandmother. My grandmother died of it when my mother was very young. And you wrote, I felt sadness as grief in her lungs. The grief came from tears of thousands of our tribe when we were uprooted and forced to walk the long miles west to Indian territory. And growing up with the legacy of tuberculosis in my family, my mother had great grief and she had lung problems. And I have done healing work on my lungs because I was at her bedside when she passed and I instantly got the grief in my lungs. 
I just took it right from her. I took good qualities, I think, from her when she died, and I took her grief. (laughs) I've done years of processing it and finally actually gave up dairy altogether because that was the final piece to get the stuff out of my lungs. It's been miraculous. But I think about that right now because we are in this place and time where people are having lung issues with this virus. And I'm wondering, again, is it our collective grief? To me, it feels like grief. I thought of that too, because it does directly affect the lungs and the lungs process. They process grief. They're the major processes of grief. And I know once the first time I ever went to the Battle of Horseshoe Bend, where my grandfather and many other relatives fought against Andrew Jackson and the illegal move, and there was a massacre. I got bronchitis. I never had bronchitis before or since. And then I've almost died twice from pneumonia. But the saxophone, I realized a few years ago, helped heal my lungs. And the other thing, before I forget, is that our mothers, sometimes they pass things on directly at death and at other times. And there's been times where I've sat and processed when there's something that has come up in the family or with me. I've had to sit with it, and then it's sometimes it's like even unknotting something that could cause harm in the future for the children or grandchildren, because we don't want that harm to come to them. We all have things to learn. We're all here to help take care of things, and we can't each of us do everything, but you can consciously do that, which brings us back to this coronavirus and how it directly goes in to stop up your lungs. And I think of it, well, if we are, if you think of every human bearing a set of lungs or one lung for some people, but we're bearing lungs that we're also part of maybe what we are here to do for the earth, we help clean the earth. Mm. And maybe our lungs all working together are helping. The earth has grief. No, for sure. And maybe that's, What's happening here? I mean, we're processing our own grief, and certainly we don't we have grief as a nation. And then I speak, I can't speak for tribal nation. I can't even speak for my own, but, (laughs) (laughs) but, you know, as tribal nations, we have grief in this country and in the history of this country, but we have grief as citizens of this earth body. You wrote that uh, just as you felt your grandmother living in you. You felt the legacy and personhood of your warrior grandfathers and grandmothers who refused to surrender to injustice against your people. And I think there have been injustices against people throughout time. And even the ones doing the injustices are hurt. Right. We're all injured by pain that we cause or that's perpetrated against us. So I think that's an interesting idea that you've just put forth that we're maybe healing some collective human grief for ourselves and for the planet as a whole entity. Interesting. I love the image. And I think, where does that come from? I love the image of all of our lungs working together is cleaning the earth. And it's like, where does that, I keep thinking about that because it's not something I'd thought of before. I am in awe of activists those who put their lives on the line for a cause. When Valerie Kaur was a first-year law student at Yale, she was asked to attend a meeting of residents who were being harassed by the police. 
stopped and detained without reason, sometimes being beaten and tasered. Shopkeepers watched officers waiting to harass customers outside of their stores. Families were terrified to walk or drive through parts of town. When asked whether they would tell their stories, these people who were often immigrants said no, because it was just too dangerous. Until Valerie and her friends showed up. I asked Valerie to talk about how their work helped to remake the police department and is rippling out to departments across the nation. We became a coalition that night in the church basement. The priest had put up a big piece of paper and he drew a straight line down the middle and said, who has the power in this town? And the people said, the police, the mayor, and they literally had just shown us scars on their wrists from the hands of these police officers. And then he says, well, who else has the power in this town? And finally, somebody said, Dios. And the priest says, that's right. The people with God in their hearts have the power. And he wrote down, this is the world as it is, and this is the world as it ought to be. And let's live into the world as it ought to be. And when people were too afraid, yes, all eyes went to the corner of the room. <laughs> so first year, and I swallowed and suddenly we became, he's like, don't worry, we have our lawyers in the room. And we became a coalition. And I enlisted the resources of the legal clinic at my law school. And we became a coalition of law students and lawyers and faith leaders and community leaders. And over the next three years, we launched a multi-pronged campaign, just getting the Department of Justice to investigate And it all led to a monumental consent decree where we had the four police officers who were most responsible for the brutality were arrested and put behind bars. That is so amazing. So amazing. One of them had trailed me on my way home (laughs) from school. It was terrifying. And um, arrested on charges of conspiracy, false arrest, excessive force, obstruction of justice. But we knew that it was never just about a few bad actors. And this is where the practice of love is so effective because if we think about them as human beings who are being radicalized and authorized by the institution, then the real bad guy is the police department itself and changing the culture of the department. So we sat in that basement of that church and had the people themselves imagine what a just police department would look like in their town. And they came up with seven demands. We got six of them in the consent decree, and the seventh on a lawsuit that we filed afterwards. So yes, we had, over the course of those years, not only ended the reign of terror by this police department, we had reimagined the department. And then it's now been used as a model in Ferguson and Baltimore. And certainly, I'm guessing Minneapolis is looking into it as they're imagining what their public safety system might look like. Sometimes activism looks like singing a song. Here's Joy Harjo performing Rabbit is Up to Tricks at the Library of Congress National Book Festival. If you'd like to see the whole riveting performance, which I've watched like four times, I'll tell you what to Google at the end. That's her playing the flute, by the way. Every human culture has trickster figures. Some of them are coyote. Some they have jesters. And often you find the trickster figures sit close to the person in power. (laughs) Until in some instances they take over the seat of power. And that's all I need to say. (laughs) 
And this is a contemporary rabbit trickster story. And you'll see what I mean. In a world long before this one, there was enough for everyone until somebody got out of line. We heard it was rabbit fooling around with clay in the wind. Everybody was tired of his tricks and no one would play with him and he was lonely in this world. So rabbit thought to make a person and when he blew into the mouth of that crude figure to see what would happen? The clay man stood up. Rabbit showed the clay man how to steal a chicken. The clay man obeyed. Then he showed him how to steal corn. The clay man obeyed. Then he showed him how to steal someone else's wife. And that clay man obeyed. Rabbit felt important and powerful. And clay man felt important and powerful. And once that clay man started, he could not stop. Once he took that chicken, he wanted all the chickens. Once he took that corn, he wanted all the corn. And once he took that wife, well, he wanted all the wives. He was insatiable. Then he had a taste of gold. He wanted all the gold. Soon it was land or anything else he saw. His wanting only made him want more. Soon it was countries, then it was trade. The wanting infected the earth. We lost track of the purpose and meaning for life. We began to forget our songs, our stories. We could no longer see or hear our ancestors or talk with each other across the kitchen table. Forests were being mowed down all over the world to make more, and Rabbit had no place left to play. Rabbit's trick had backfired. Rabbit tried to call the clay man back. But when that clay man wouldn't listen, Rabbit realized he'd made a clay man with no ears. Writers often find that their storylines can't help but involve writing about others, which can be unnerving. Most have no interest in hurting a soul for their creativity, particularly beloved family members. But sometimes the people closest to us surprise us the most, as was the case with Sue Monk Kidd's mother. Catch Ann Patchett's reaction here too. It's priceless. 
Sue, I remember hearing that when you sent your mother Dance of the Dissident Daughter, which is one of my favorite books, you didn't hear back from her for a couple of months. Were you worried? Yes, I was. <laughs> you didn't hear back from her, period? Or just not about the book? <laughs> no, she would, we talked about other things. Very Oh, Lord. Long. Yeah, and we just discreetly skipped over that part that I had written a book that took on our entire religious tradition. (laughs) (laughs) Then two months later, a letter arrives and we usually talked by phone. We didn't live in the same town. And she had written me a letter, which was highly unusual. And I thought, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. And I opened it and read it cautiously, but it was beautiful. And she said something like, I am... I forget the exact age, 70 something years old at the time. And I don't want to miss the dance. Please help me learn the dance. (gasps) Oh my God. Oh, I have goosebumps. Yeah. And I keep, this is a treasure for me is this letter. So she became on board with what I was writing about late in life. And we had many wonderful, intimate conversations about it. And she became a champion of feminism (laughs) at her age. My father would look at me and go, well, you ruined her. (laughs) (laughs) Sue and Anne were talking about growing up in the Deep South. And in light of the murder of George Floyd and the following nationwide, even global protests, I had thoughts and questions. And as the owner of a popular indie bookstore in Nashville called Parnassus Books, you'll see that Anne has her own questions. Okay, so you just brought up something, Anne, that is sparking an interest for me about the South in general. And I want to give a little context about what I'm thinking. So if you look back 350 years of Europeans going something like 55,000 voyages to and from Africa, where they enslaved 400,000 Africans, most of whom ended up in the American South. And it was these men and women and their children who were responsible for much of the economic foundation of the ruling class. The two of you have a lot of diversity in your books. And Belcanto was set in South America, State of Wonder in the Amazon with tribal groups. And your novels Taft and Run were made up primarily of African-American characters. And then Sue, in The Secret Life of Bees and The Invention of Wings, many of your characters, your main characters are African-American. And I read as a child in the South that you read a lot of those slave narratives that I think really opened so many of our eyes when we were young, if we were able to read them, about the plight of African-Americans. I remember reading one where And I forget who the author was, but it was something about how he owned nothing and could claim nothing. And their wives weren't theirs. Their children weren't theirs. Family could be taken and separated at any point. And you could be insulted. You could be tortured. You could never raise your hand in protest. And what's amazing to me about the two of you is you're these lovely white ladies who write with such incredible empathy You get into the minds and hearts and skin of whomever you're writing about. And I would love for you to tell me more about how you do that. The racial issues that we have in this country, and particularly my experience in the South, 
had a profound effect on me, on my consciousness. And I think I knew from the very beginning, even back when I was an adolescent and still believed I would be a writer before I lost it and then found it, (laughs) I thought perhaps I would write a novel and it would be about the 60s and racial conflicts because I witnessed so many of them. I think this is a particularly Southern thing too, because Mm -hmm. it is a wounded geography about this. And I have noticed that we don't like to talk about slavery in America too much. And I think it doesn't fit with our sense of ourselves as Americans, the winners, the ones who win the wars and who have all the innovation. And we have such a rarefied vision of ourselves. And this yeah. is not a good, this doesn't fit. This, <laughs> exactly. This whole slavery. We don't like to talk about it, but I felt like I wanted to go to ground zero to understand where this racial issue came from, this terrible racial divide in our country. And I had dealt with it in The Secret Life of Bees in the 60s, and I wanted then to go all the way back. It was very daunting to me to write in the voice of an African-American enslaved woman, but I was very compelled to do it. And I remember something James Baldwin said that this is a shared history, both white and black, particularly in the South. It's a deeply shared history. And I felt I was writing my history and giving witness to my history, too. And even in the Book of Longings, slavery was throughout the entire biblical period. It was everywhere. So you've continued it on into this book. Well, I can't seem to stop writing about <laughs> this. I love you. I love you. <laughs> or, or women. That's my other thing is gender and women finding their freedom and their voice and their potential. That's a thing I can't get away from either. Not long before she arrived, I'd begun writing down the stories of the matriarchs in the scriptures. Listening to the rabbis, one would have thought the only figures worth mention in the whole of history were Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, David, Saul, Solomon, Moses, Moses, Moses. When I was finally able to read the scriptures for myself, I discovered, behold, there were women. To be ignored, to be forgotten, this was the worst sadness of all. I swore an oath to set down their accomplishments and praise their flourishings, no matter how small. I would be a chronicler of lost stories. It was exactly the kind of boldness Mother despised. I want to go back and ask Sue a question that is something that I wrestle with so much. And if we were standing in the back room at Parnassus right now and you were signing your name, this is the question that I would want to talk to you about. Do you feel If you were that woman at 30 with your toddlers making your decision on your birthday to be a writer, but that was happening right now, today, do you think that you would be able to write the books that you've written? Because the times Mm -hmm. have changed so drastically, so recently, that I look at my books and I think, I'm not sure that I could start out today writing those books because the awareness has changed. And going through this whole experience with American Dirt, 
and who owns a story and who yep. can tell a story. Sue, where are you yeah. coming out? Oh, wow. Yeah, I get it totally. And I agree that I probably could not have written a couple of books that I wrote today yeah. because I did write in the voice of an enslaved woman. My feeling is that if we start deciding who can imagine in a certain way and tell a certain story, we're already in a little bit of jeopardy and we've got to think about this, how to do this, but at the same time, respecting other cultures. It is exactly. just so hard. Yeah. Just that level of vitriol <laughs> that's out there. Yeah. I think that has some impact on all of us as writers because you just think, man, really, am I going to just stick my hand in a hornet's nest? Really? Maybe not. Yeah, yeah I agree, Anne. It's uh, troubling to me. And I hate to see these fears begin to influence what we write, how we write, how we curate our imaginations, what yeah. stories we tell. I think it's that we should all have the freedom to write what we want, but we do it well and respectfully of the other cultures. That's yeah. kind of my feeling about it. I totally agree. And yet I can think of so many scenarios now that I wouldn't write about. Louise Erdrich is a great friend of mine, <coughs> and I really feel like she is our very best. I love her work so much. I love The Night Watchman so much. And I think I would know more write a book about the Ojibwe people than I would <laughs> jump in front of a train. You know, I, I know that there are all sorts of places that now at this point in my life, I would not dare to go. Whereas when yeah. I was young, I felt like there were no limits. And I wonder how it is for young writers now who come into this business with the limits. Well, as one who has just written a book in which Jesus got married. You know? Yeah, well, there's that. <laughs> there is that. I'm not too good on being prudent, apparently. Joel Stein had a weird thing happen when his book In Defense of Elitism was released in October of last year. He kind of coined the term boat elites as opposed to intellectual elites long before pro-Trump boat parades or Trumptillas started this past May. So here's the backstory. Republican candidates had been rallying against elites for years. But when Trump was giving a rally in Minneapolis, he said, wait a second, we have bigger houses and boats. We should be called boat elites, <laughs> which Joel ran with. Joel doesn't come out and say it in his book, but he might as well have used the term, the masses are all asses when writing about how the majority of the world was wrong about slavery. It was wrong about empowering Nazis. It was wrong about sending Japanese Americans to internment camps. And wrong, he says, about every natural phenomenon being caused by Greek gods. In this snippet, Joel makes the argument that some of our reading habits are a mirror for the rise of strongman dictators. I wrote a piece also in the New York Times a long time ago, New York Times Online, about how adults shouldn't be reading children's literature. <laughs> Harry Potter, etc. Right, I remember that piece. I was like, really? You're going to read stories about good and evil? That's the level of complexity you want to operate on? You don't want to learn about other people's lives that are somewhat more nuanced? 
So that does bum me out about the culture we live in today. Well, it makes everything black and white. It makes the us versus them, the evil versus good. It's simplistic. And the world, as you point out with the Eric Garcetti example, the world is not simplistic. It is all gray. There's nuance and subtlety. And that's what they call autocrats, you know, these strong men. They call them the great simplifiers. And that's what Trump is, right? That's what conspiracy theories are. That's what fake news is. It's like, I think there's like 10 bad people in the world, probably pedophiles, probably like pizza too much. And they're out there in the world. So we got to call Ukraine and get rid of Joe Biden because he's one of them. And if we just get rid of those eight self-dealing guys, we'll be in good shape. Right. And that's what QAnon believes. I mean, that's a really fun way of looking at the world because there's good and bad and you're the brilliant detective who can figure it out and it really empowers you. And it releases endorphins in your brain. As soon as you figure it out, you get a shot of dopamine and you feel better and... Yeah, you've been red-pilled or... Yeah, it's amazing. I love how in that section about the dictators and the terrible simplifiers, you say the best line, democracy is government of the nerds by the nerds, and for the nerds. And the boat elite do not respect nerds. <laughs> no, no one respects nerds. That's why no one wants to call themselves elites because that's what it kind of means. Oh. People are happy to say they're rich, but they're not so happy to say they're elite. That's so funny. And then on that last point, you say, boat elites take power with their fun memes and claim that instincts are more valuable than expertise acquired through our beloved rule of 10,000 hours of hard work. I wonder if anyone still wants to be a member of the intellectual elite. I'm so grateful that you're trying to bring back the positives for us. Yeah, no, we got to own it. Everyone listening to this podcast needs to own their elitism and stop denying it. I think that's the first step in getting our world back. We all have a hand in getting our world back. Jane Goodall and Keely Shea-Brosnan have been on the front lines of some of the most epic environmental winds of our lifetime. And I could listen to their ideas forever. The main message is that we make a difference every day and we can make ethical choices in what we buy and eat and wear. And I've seen young people, perhaps from deprived backgrounds, and they start off being very shy and not wanting to speak out. But then they do something and see that it makes a difference. Mm. And they work with other young people. And it empowers them, absolutely empowers them to see that they can make a difference. It could be by action, or it could be by speaking out about something. That's another way that you can make a difference, influencing your peers or your parents. I had the idea of Roots and Shoots because I found so many young people who'd lost hope and said there was nothing they could do about the future of the planet. So I try and inspire as many children of all ages as I can to take action. People here in Zanzibar, traditionally, women don't really work. They just stay at home, be mothers, be wives. I was not that kind of girl who loves to mix up with people, but being in Roots and Shoots, meeting new people, cleaning up, planting trees, and helping animals. Hey, everybody. It just changed me. It made me be someone new. As a young journalist, when I first met you, I was taking ideas and stories that I had collected from various people. 
And I brought those to a morning television show broadcasting live across the United States. And I felt like it was my job to amplify the message, my job to inspire people and to educate them. I wasn't going to make up their mind for them, but if I could bring them the story in an intelligent way with heart, yeah. I could touch their hearts and perhaps I could create some environmentalists or some thought provoking actions along the way. So I likened it to being a Johnny Appleseed of the environment. And each week I had the opportunity to plant these seeds and watch them grow. And so over the years, I've had thousands of people write me letters or call me or meet me on airplanes or at events and tell me that I inspired their activism, that I inspired them to become an animal rights activist, that I inspired them to plant a garden. I inspired them to teach their children about the environment, whatever it yeah. was through these stories. So yes, I do think that each and every one of us can make a difference. That's one of Jane's most renowned quotes is that each and every one of us makes a difference. What kind of difference do you want to make? Jane, you can probably give us the exact quote. Yeah, well, I just say every individual makes an impact on the planet every day. And we have a choice as to what kind of impact we make. The only thing is that we talk about making ethical choices in what we buy. You know, where did it come from? How was it made? Did it harm the environment? Did it lead to cruelty to animals like the factory farms? Is it cheap because of sweatshops or forced labor? So we can make those choices. We can ask those questions. But if you're living in poverty, you don't have that luxury. You simply have to do whatever it takes to get through a day. Yeah. And cutting down the last tree in your desperation to grow more food for your family or fishing the last fish, you know, or buying the cheapest junk food because you simply don't have the luxury that we have of yeah. making ethical choices. Well, that's one of the things that's so powerful of, about the movie, Jane, is seeing how you got locals to be committed to saving the forest, realizing that in saving the forest, they were saving themselves. And in some instances, those forests are now growing. Oh, they have. All around Gombe, the forest, the, the trees have come back. And other African countries where the same thing is happening, creating a corridors along the Albertine Rift in Uganda. And Everything is lovely until you get a president coming in who doesn't agree with policies like this. That's the big problem. I know. Fear that everything you've worked for and everything that people have learned and everything that inspires them could be stamped out. But you know. do anyway. Yeah. Well, I love what you said about, look, I feel like this is my mission and essentially I'm going to die trying. If it doesn't work, at least I know I tried. Yeah. And how can we bring children into the world and not make them feel that what they do is making a difference? Because if you don't have hope, then what's the point of doing anything? I know. Yeah. This is why I collect up stories like you, Keely, but stories, I think the media has a big responsibility here because yes, there's an awful lot of doom and gloom, but there are also amazing, wonderful stories or people who do impossible things and restore mm. environments and save animals and lift people from poverty and fight regimes. And those stories need to be told. We know that stories change the world like nothing else. 
since our physical world needs saving in a big, urgent way, I'm starting to ask my interviewees their thoughts on publishing more sustainably. I so appreciated how this Random House publisher, Chris Jackson, went there with me and his author, Valerie Kors, take on the topic. Chris, this may be putting you on the spot a little bit, but (laughs) I am a tree hugger. I'm a tree hugger whose art kills trees. No conflict there, Mm. right? So I want to address that a little bit about sustainability in our industry. My last book was with Simon & Schuster. It was printed on 100% post-consumer waste and soy inks. I had to walk. They weren't willing to do it, but God, it was an environmental book, so I had to put my foot down. But there are alternatives now. There's FSC certified paper and Do you think about the fact that 30 million trees are felled a year to publish books? And are you thinking about that when you're publishing and working towards being more sustainable? That's an interesting question. And it is putting me on the spot. But um, we're working on right now, the book is coming out in about a month or two by two women environmental activists and scientists, Kathleen Wilkinson and Ayanna Johnson. On that, in fact, one of the things that was like a contractual requirement when we were doing it because they wanted us to figure out the most environmentally sustainable way to print the book. Yeah. Which led to some interesting conversations with our production and I manufacturing bet. people. It's something that the company as a whole is trying to move toward at Random House. Sure. Trying to move toward more sustainable ways of printing the books. But I think it's also an interesting project for us to try to think about, well, what is the next level of sustainability? And yeah for an industry that is, as you said, still is a paper-based industry, even though there are all these other forms. And of course, there's environmental questions about every form that the books take. If they're digital, if they're audio, what are the consequences of that? So that's something that we are really starting to look into because I think that's absolutely right. Even when you're doing books that you think are adding somehow, you know, are, are part of, are virtuous in a way, or at least are opening up people to ideas that are important. Like you don't want to also, while you're doing it, destroy the earth. Well, <laughs> Which would be sort of <laughs> counterproductive to the larger mission. And that's how I've always looked at it. I went into this industry knowing that it was a conflict, but also knowing that I needed to be gentle with myself and everybody else because we're walking into systems. And systems don't change overnight. They're big, grinding, massive entities. And so I've done my best over the years to plant trees or to offset my habits in any way that I could and to educate. And then to hope, like you just said, to hope that the books that I was a part of were adding such value that there was some worthiness in doing it that way. And always hoping that there would be better practices to come. And so I'm starting to ask people that question and talk about, well, what are we doing and what can we do and how can we offset things? And it's something to start thinking about. It's a really important question because we have so many things that we're fighting, so many different issues that we're trying to address. I think the issue of climate change and the issue of environmental sustainability is in some ways the issue ultimately for us as a species. What's interesting is almost everything that we work on, whether it's police reform or whatever the individual issues are that we're working on, part of what's happening in terms of changing of consciousness I think gets us closer to a point where we're able to address the biggest problems we have more successfully. I have this book out right now, How to Be an Anti-Racist by uh, Candy. And it's it's a great book. And it's about literally how to work your way through these ideas of hierarchies of human value and how to free yourself. But you start to see all of the connections between 
anti-racist thinking and thinking that allows us all to work together on common projects to save ourselves as a species. And as long as you have racist ideas that are sort of organizing us, you're not going to get to a point where you can make those kinds of changes because you start to say, well, it's affecting them. It's not affecting me. Therefore, it doesn't matter. Right. And all of these ideas are hopefully bringing us closer to a world where we can actually take collective action to save ourselves. So I think that's important. So I wouldn't want to stop the dissemination of those ideas. But at the same time, you have to think about these things holistically and how you're able to, in the product itself, represent the ideas. That's a challenge for us as an industry. Yeah. Well, it's a good conversation to have. And thank you for going there with me. And I'll let you know what I learn. I'm learning a lot of Please. stuff about that. And I'll Absolutely. stay, I think I'll stay in touch with that. you. I have some ideas. That's amazing. Right. <laughs> so oh, yeah. enjoy listening and learning. The conversation that you are all having, I feel like I'm hearing that kind of version of conversation happening in so many different kinds of industries and spaces, certainly around racial justice, but then it connects to everything else. And so this shift from there's a chapter in the book called Reimagine. And yes. Chris, I almost feel like when I wrote it, I thought it was so radical. But <laughs> I feel like now right. everybody is shifting so from resistance to reimagining the institutions that order the world. Even if you've got a burning desire to tell your story, you may not always feel up to the task of putting yourself out there. I always say when I'm teaching that agents and publishers are praying for you to show up as much as you're praying for them, which makes people smile and hopefully have more confidence. This bit from Anita Morjani about how her first book deal magically came to be and Kelly Noonan-Gore sharing about how her film, Heal, was created might just make you breathe easier. I thought, oh my God, this is my purpose. It is to share my story. It is to come out and say, yes, this is me. This is my story and not hide behind the internet. So when I went to bed that night, I was just thinking, I have no idea how this is going to happen. I'm going to leave it to the universe. I'm going to leave it to my soul to figure it out. But in my head, yeah, but in my head, I was still thinking kind of small. I was thinking maybe my friend who's healing center, this is maybe she'll invite me back again. Maybe I'm supposed to come here more often. That's how I was thinking. And the next morning, it happened to be my birthday, I woke up, checked my emails, and in my emails, there was this email from Hay House saying, Wayne Dyer has discovered your story and has asked us to reach out to you and to see if you're interested in writing a book, which we would be happy to publish. Ah. And he would like to write the forward. Now, I started crying when I saw that. I actually wrote back and I said, is this for real? And I said, it's my birthday today. And she wrote back within minutes and she said, this is real. This is really Hay House and Wayne Dyer has read your story online. One day I was just talking with Wayne and he said to me, do you know how hard you are to track down? And I said, what do you mean? And he said, do you know that from the time I read your story to the time that Hay House tracked you down? Because I told them to track you down. And he said, From the time I read it to the time they tracked you down, it took five months. (gasps) I said, really? Five months? He said, yeah, we didn't have a lot to go on. It said Anita M's NDE. And in the story, you say you're in Hong Kong. That's all we had to go on. And they had to figure out how to track you down. 
But here's the interesting thing. And I said to him, but do you know that the day they found me was the day I was ready to share my story publicly? And that is, yeah, that's, you know, it's so so interesting about that. Right now I'm halfway through a book proposal course that I'm teaching. And last week, the topic was PR and marketing. And I talked about that at the very open. It's about how intimidated most people are about PR and marketing and about putting themselves out there because most people are pretty modest. There are very few of us who really want to say, hey, look at me, look at me. <laughs> most people are pretty modest and yeah. they know from a spiritual standpoint, we're all the center of the universe. But most of us don't go out in the world thinking, hey, pay attention to me. And so there's a lot of things people have to unpack to be comfortable about putting themselves out in the marketplace. There's an emotional process that people need to go through. So we were going through that process last week, and then I read that part of your story this week, and I thought, oh, my gosh, this is the perfect example of what we were talking about. What is it that you have to do to get ready? Some people have to go to therapy. Some people have to do forgiveness work. Some people have to just, it's as simple as getting a haircut so you feel photogenic, whatever it is. Mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually, there are things that all of us can do so that we're more in a position of ease to take our story out to the people who need it. Yes, it's exactly that. It's about becoming ready ourselves. And that's what I kind of call the inside out view because we think we have to go out there and hammer at the marketing and hammer at other people. (laughs) But no, it's inside. Get yourself ready and it'll come. Oh, I love that. And Kelly, you've been a really good model for me about that as well because Kelly's shy. Kelly, you're not a look at me, look at me person. Even though you were a model, even though you're an actress, you're actually really super modest. And you've been a great model for me about somebody who, okay, you're not 100% confident all the time standing up and talking. And guess what? You go do it anyway. And you don't always want to have the camera on you and you go do it anyway. In fact, I don't know if you remember this, Kel, but I was the one who said to you on the first screening of your movie, where are you? Put yourself more in this movie. I want to see (laughs) way more Kelly. And you were like, oh, my God, I'm not sure I can do it. I was like, yeah, you can because we want to see you. But that was not your initial feeling. No, I did. I actually, when we first hired our editor, we were still filming the movie, but we were editing as we were going along. And I was like, I think, I don't know, guys. I feel like you should just edit me out. I know. And, <laughs> like, and they're like, uh, yeah. Well, guys, in this last third of the show, we saw how spirit leads us into all sorts of magical places and missions we did not anticipate. We contemplated our grief and the grief of the earth and how this pandemic, the stoppage, may be related. We saw how one courageous woman helped a town reimagine their once corrupt police department, and we heard activism through music and audiobooks. We saw that this scary act of writing about religion and family members can have delightfully healing results. We touched on slavery and the wounded geography of the South and asked ourselves what stories are ours to tell. We dished on bodalites and dictators and horrible simplifiers and the idea that maybe democracy is nerdier than we thought. We covered how each one of us makes a difference every day through our habits and choices and how whole forests can grow back with a little help. We discussed tree-friendlier publishing practices, something you will keep hearing about on this show. And lastly, 
we saw that magical things happen in our lives on the outside when we are ready for them on the inside. Wow, that's an almost wrap. From August 2019 to August 2020, a time in history I don't know that any of us will ever fully be able to wrap our minds around, which makes me think of Deepak Chopra. (laughs) The close of his episode, Aria Ford and I kept talking after Deepak hung up. We were laughing about how much of a mind bender our conversation was. And I think this behind the scenes bit between Ariel and me might make you feel good. Seems like a fitting way to close out these snippets with a big question mark and a smile. Ariel, you get there? I'm here. Dude, he is deep. (laughs) I really do need some tequila. (laughs) <laughs> my poor brain is screaming what the you know what 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 i didn't quite get that how do you string all those words together but you know for me that's always been the magic of deepak i always said to him listen your audience nobody understands a word you're saying they just feel so good to hear you say it that's because exactly. there's some level at which they know that you're sharing reality or truth with them, and he probably wouldn't call it reality, so you're sharing your illusion with them, (laughs) but in a way that feels like we're floating in a gentle, warm, nurturing sea. Yeah, Yeah, it feels like somebody knows what's happening. Okay, there's somebody that's got a handle on this, at least. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, geez. Yeah, well, you know what? I still think there's a level at which if you hang out with people who are woke, like Big time woke. Yeah. We might wake up too. Ah, I love it. I hope so. Okay, sister. That was fun <laughs> as hell. That was so great. <laughs> All right. Love you so much. Love you too. Bye, babe. Bye. Thank you to the fantastic writers who've come on this show. The writing journey can be lonely, especially now. So your wisdom and humor are invaluable. Huge thanks to you, dear listener. It seems a new podcast pops up just about every day. And I am enormously grateful for the gift of your time and attention. If you haven't heard them already, I invite you to check out the previous three best of episodes where Glennon Doyle, Abby Wambach, Anne Lamont, Van Jones, Brene Brown, Austin Channing Brown, Lee Child, Maria Shriver, Candice Bergen, Tom Hanks, Mary Carr, Catherine Oxenberg, Martha Beck, Dean Koontz, and so many others share the best of their best. And I'm always here to help you find your voice, your story, to craft your book proposal, and perhaps even introduce you to your future literary agent. My Carmel retreat should start back up in the summer of 2021. But my next virtual retreat starts soon on January 18th. And what a delightful, unexpected benefit of the stoppage. I hosted my first online retreat this past fall. It was so nurturing and motivating and fun. And the gals got so much done that we decided to continue reading and brainstorming once a month indefinitely because we need each other. We need connection and connections. And I've got both for you. Check out bookmama.com for getting one of the limited spots. Participants receive an immediate download of my six-module book proposal magic course, 
the one I was talking about here with Anita Morjani, which includes sections of a Joel Stein proposal and a Danny Shapiro press release, plus in-depth interviews exclusive to the course with a lit agent and all sorts of experts, including Terry McMillan on hooking your readers and Kelly Noonan-Gores on staying connected to your why through every stage of a creative project. And tune in next month as longtime buds Elizabeth Gilbert and Marie Forleo dish on some of their writing practices and talk about their book proposals. Details I had never heard before. Ah, hashtag I love my job. Since I am a horse owner and a horse lover, I will close out with Joy Harjo's She Had Some Horses. Remember to Google Best of the National Book Festival, Poet Laureate Joy Harjo 2019 to see this incredible performance. Huge thanks to Kevin Baker of Red Room Sound for his tireless efforts following my 76 billion notes about the order here. And Julia McPherson of Inner Space Marketing for making us look so good. I don't know about them, but I had a blast putting this show together. After spending the past few months writing, it's been so nice to be back. I hope it was worth the wait. If so, please take a minute to share your thoughts or your gold stars over on iTunes or wherever you listen to us. Happy New Year, you guys. Stay safe. Right on. She had horses who got down on their knees for any savior. She had horses who thought their high price had saved them. She had horses who tried to save her, who climbed in her bed at night and prayed she had some horses. She had some horses she loved. She had some horses she hated. These were the same horses. (laughs) 